You know, sitting at a um, conference this last week in Orlando, and um, the song came on at the conference, and they started playing it. And, um, you know, I don't, I don't know if you're like me, if you guys in the room will, will kind of feel the same as I, but, you know, when, when we start this singing thing and music starts, it takes me uh, a couple songs usually just to even get to the point where I'm paying attention because I just kind of walk in like this sometimes, and, and I'm, I'm hard. I'm hard to get that wall down to where I'm ready to engage God. And about halfway through this song, it's like all of a sudden I started seeing the lyrics and, and, and listening to them and letting them kind of get in through my defenses. And, and it just, just blew me away for the, for the next half of the song to the point where I'm like, Michael, I'm just telling you we got to do this song. we got to do it this weekend. It's got to be now because of the truth that it sings about, about God's relentless pursuit of you. See, so often, we, maybe you don't know God, maybe you're, you're here searching out this Jesus thing, and you think you're here looking for God, but let me just tell you the truth of the scriptures is, no, God has been pursuing you from the day you were born, been pursuing you for his truth to break free into your heart to the point where it changes your eternity, it changes the, the destination of your life. And I'm just telling you, it is reckless love, it's just that, it's relentless love that God is after us, that God is pursuing us, that God loves us enough to already have paid for everything you're ever going to do. Any bad choice you've ever made has already been paid for. You're already forgiven for it because God has so relentlessly been pursuing you and chasing you down from the moment you took your first breath. So let me pray for us before we jump into today. God, I just thank you that you pursued me. And that you came after me. And that you drew me to yourself. That I might find you and live my life for you. God, I thank you that you're doing that in this room right now. That you are just actively pursuing every single one of us in this room. And God, it is your heart and it is my heart that we would receive that pursuit. That we would open our hearts to your truth. That we would allow you to speak like only you can. And what's amazing, Jesus, is that even once we're found, you never stop pursuing us. You never stop chasing us down to love us, to wrap your arms around us, to reveal new truths about who you are on a regular basis, and I thank you for that. We thank you for that. So God, I just give the next little while to you, and I just ask that you would just fill up this room, that you would open our hearts and our minds to hearing your words as only you can speak them. And God, I thank you in advance for what you are going to do in us today. In your name, amen. Well, hello, my name is Kevin Valentine. I'm the lead pastor here at Kensington, and uh, we're beginning a three-week series um, called Unstoppable Force, and it is, it is on what Jesus dreamed the church would be and what it would become, which will lead us, these three weeks will lead us into Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. And I will just tell you, those three services that we're doing right here are designed to be a three-part series in one week, and I'm just telling you what we are planning and what, what uh, I have seen as we gone through the meetings to understand how the services are going to go together. I'm just telling you, be at all three and do not come alone. Do not rob your friends of this incredible story of Jesus um, that, that we're going to be telling from Sunday, Friday, and then Sunday. It is going to be phenomenal. So I just want to like put your calendar 
down right now. Get it on your calendar. Sunday, Friday, Sunday. Don't miss any of those three services. But I want to start with this. You are sitting in quite an amazing place. It's actually quite unbelievable, actually. And, and uh, it's not Windermere Prep. That's not what I'm talking about. Now, this place is unbelievable. Like some of you are going, this is nicer than my college. Yes, it was this nicer than your college. But this is an amazing place. But this is not the amazing place that I'm talking about. And uh, this unbelievable place that you're sitting in. Um, you are actually sitting um, in a church in a school, but it's bigger than that. You're sitting in the Big C Church. See, we're a, the way I look at it is we're a little C church. We're one of many churches, but there's a Big C Church, which is the church, plural, and millions of churches around the world meet on days like today and t- teach the message and story of Jesus Christ. And that's where the title of this series comes from, because the church is this unstoppable force of God setting people free. And our roots as a church are found 2,000 years ago in something that Jesus set into motion, which was a movement called the church, and we have our roots there that we look back to and say something began there in a dream that Jesus had that he communicated to his followers. And so when you look at what Jesus dreamed for the church, you find him speaking about it in an interaction that he has with his disciples. In Matthew 16, verse 13, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, the 12 that had been following him um, for years at this point, he says, Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, that's how Jesus refers to himself, and he's really referring to an Old Testament passage where Daniel, the prophet Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus showed up, said that when the Messiah gets here, he's going to refer to himself as the Son of Man. So Jesus says, who do people say the Son of Man is, referring to himself as the Messiah? Now, I just want to say this. If you hit the pause button, try opening a conversation with that sometime. You know, you meet some people, hey, you know, what's the word on the street about me, right? What's the word? What what are people saying about me? And if I were to ask you that, you would say, well, I got news for you, Kev. Um, Surprisingly... The only person talking about you is you. That's what you would say to me. Um, But verse 14, so Jesus asked him this question, who do people say that I am? In verse 14, they reply. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets, which is interesting to me that they start naming off, people say that you're dead famous religious people. That's what they say. That's why you're John the Baptist. Two chapters earlier, John the Baptist was beheaded, so they're saying some people think you're him. I don't know why. Um, and then other people think your, your prophet's long dead, long ago that died. They think you're back. Why are they speculating? Because Jesus showed up on the scene and things just were different with him. He had an authority and a power that they had never seen in their lifetimes. And so they're trying to explain where is this coming from. It must be dead people coming back to life. I know, really, really bizarre, but that's what people were talking about. And then, and then Jesus looks at his disciples and says, okay, eh, wrong answer, right? Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? It's verse 15. But what about you? Who do you say I am? And then Simon Peter is going to be the first to answer. He's the lead disciple. He's the, actually the oldest of the disciples. Uh, most scholars believe that most of the disciples were teenagers, believe it or not. And Peter was the old guy in the bunch. He was the, the leader. Um, he had experienced incredible miracles, kind of him alone. He was the guy, if you ever heard of, of Peter walking on the water, he was the only one out of 12 of them that when, when Jesus said, hey, come to me, when Peter says, hey, if it's you, tell me to come out to you and I'll come out to you. And Jesus says, well, come on. You know, all 12 could have walked on the water, but only one of them did. Peter was that guy. So, of course, it's Peter answering first. And Peter replies, he says, well, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. 
Meaning there is no way you could have figured that out just reasoning it out in your mind, but you have been told that by my Father in heaven. And then Jesus utters a sentence, and he just has this incredible way with language. He says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, the gates of hell, will not overcome it. And in that one sentence, because Jesus is a master at language, in that one sentence, only 17 words of that sentence, actually, not even the whole sentence, Jesus gives us the foundation, the builder, the owner, and the mission of the church, of which you are impacted by from when he said it 2,000 years ago. And so I want to break down what Jesus said in those 17 words, and I want to give you three thoughts about the church, because it is this unstoppable force in the world, and you are sitting in one, and so I want to talk about it, because there's a calling piece to your life and to my life that's wrapped up in this church thing, but here's the first thought that I have on the church, and that's this, the church is built on a rock, the church is built on a rock, Jesus says, Peter, you are, your, your name is Peter, which means rock in the Greek. On this rock, Peter, I just named you rock, I'm going to build my church. And a lot of theologians and some theologians and denominations actually believe that Jesus is referring to Peter and saying, Peter, I'm going to build my church on you. Because it means rock. Well, here is what you find. This is not what Jesus was saying that he was going to build the church on. This man named Peter. Peter was critical to it. He was pivotal to it, but actually Jesus is referring not to Peter, but to what he said. He's saying on this rock, what's that? The confession that you just made. Jesus is the Messiah and the Son of God, the Son of the living God. That confession, that confession, that foundational truth, the church is going to become and be this community of people who claim that statement to be true. That's the foundation. What's the foundation of the church? It is built on the confession that Jesus Christ is Lord, the Son of God, God in the flesh. That's the foundation the church stands on. It isn't built on men because men are flawed. It is built on this truth, this rock-solid declaration, foundational truth that Jesus is Lord. And I will tell you this, when you utter that statement from your lips and you believe it in your heart, it literally, when you do that, there is so much power in that statement. Like, why would Jesus say that statement is what he's going to build the church on? Let me just tell you, when you utter that with your mouth and you believe it in your heart, the destination of your eternity changes. You utter those words with your lips and you believe them in your heart, and your destination that you will take your next breath in once your last breath on this planet is taken changes. It shifts to heaven. It shifts to heaven. And I know some of you might be here and you're going, well, how, how do you get to heaven? Let me just tell you, it's crystal clear in Scripture, Romans 10, 9. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God. And it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. On this rock... This foundational truth, I'm going to build a church with people who believe that wholeheartedly with everything they have. And it is going to transform the world. There are not more powerful words that you will ever say in your life that will impact your eternity more than confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing that in your heart. That's how powerful the foundation of the church is. That's why 2,000 years later, we're still in a church where this truth is being taught. It is an unstoppable force. 
And there's two bombshells that Jesus drops right in the middle of these 17 words, and on this rock I will build my church. Who does Jesus say is building the church? You can answer this. It's like a little bit of, little bit of back and forth here. Who does Jesus say is building the church? He is. And in the same breath, who does he say owns the church? It's still up there. Can you put that back up there? We're going to do this together. Okay. Who does he say is building his church? And who does he say in the same breath that owns the church? He does. Not only is he building his church, but it's his church. It's his. It's fully and wholly his. What is our part? You and I have the most incredible invitation you will ever get because of the eternal implications of it. We are invited, we are invited to partner with Jesus as he builds his church. And I'll just tell you, if you are not a believer in Jesus yet, Jesus is inviting you to believe in him and then live your life for something bigger than yourself because your life is too small for you to live your life for. You were designed to live your life for something much bigger than yourself. Don't shrink the perspective of your life down to making it about you. You're invited into something so much bigger right here by Jesus. And we're going to get to that in a moment. But what's amazing to look at is who Jesus makes this revelation to. And this is fascinating to me. He makes this the first time he, he begins speaking about the church. He does so to Peter and the other 11 disciples. And the, if you read the scriptures, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the disciples are a train wreck. They are a mess. If you read about them, Peter, you go on, you know, he goes on, he denies Jesus. No, he denies that he ever knew Jesus. When Jesus is being tortured, Peter denies with expletives. That he doesn't even know who he is. Judas, one of, the, one of the 12 that Jesus just spoke to, betrayed Jesus, actually sold his life for 30 pieces of silver. James and John, at the end of their time of Jesus, they are so missing the point that they are vying for position and power to be his right hand and his left hand. Sit at his right hand and his left hand. The rest of the disciples were just angry and frustrated and confused and disunified. And they were the ones that Jesus chose to carry out his strategy. It's like, are you kidding me? The disciples were on the fringe of society, and if anyone had an excuse to opt out, it was all of them. And then later in the story, the Apostle Paul shows up, and he becomes even more influential than the disciples. He was a murdering, hyper-religious maniac. He wanted to kill Christians for his faith. He meets the resurrected Jesus. His eternal destination changes from here to here, where he's going to spend eternity with Jesus. And his life changes to where, rather than kill for his faith, he's ready to give up his life for his faith in Jesus and I will just tell you, why are we standing, why, are, why am I standing here talking to you right now in North America about Jesus and about his church? It's because the Apostle Paul was the one that God tapped on the shoulder to bring the story of Jesus to the Western Hemisphere. And I love these guys because every time I read about their mistakes and their weaknesses, I'm reminded that if Jesus can use them, right? If Jesus can use these train wrecks of people, then he can use us. And more importantly, that he can use me. And I'll just, I'll just tell you, if you're a part of what we're doing, if you're a regular attender of Kensington, and you're one that serves and you, you give here, um, it, it, you need to know something about this church. We are not this perfect, flawless, never makes mistakes place. Why? Number one reason, because I lead it, right? And I am so imperfect. Just ask my wife, my kids, and anybody that knows me uh, for real. I'm just like, you're still my friends. Thank you. Because I just don't have it all together. And guess what? I don't have to. To do what God's called me to do, and neither do you. 
I don't have to have my life all together to be used by God. If God can use the disciples, if God can use Paul, if God can change the world through them, if God can change my world through them, then God can use me to change the world around me. See, God's plan all along has always been to use flawed people. In fact, that's one of our values, one of our seven values. If you want to know, it's, it's from brokenness. We want to lead from brokenness. We don't want to hide our brokenness. So many of us, we live our lives hiding everything that's wrong about us, or at least trying to, even though people can see through it. We live our lives hiding the brokenness around us. We lead our lives trying to portray something that's not true. And you've done it, I've done it, but here is what's incredible. When we reveal our brokenness, when we lead from our brokenness, especially in the church where everybody is, is, is so worried about appearances, but when we can come in here and be ourselves and be flawed human beings like we all are, when we can be authentic you know what that does? It points to the power of Jesus Christ in our life to still use us. So the first thought I have is the church is built on the declaration that Jesus is Lord. Here's my second thought about the church. The church is built on a rock that is rolling. Yeah, see how I worked rock and roll into that? See, that's pretty cool, huh? Just kidding. The church was never intended by Jesus to be stagnant and focused on comfort. Never, that's never what Jesus intended. He, he intended the church to be moving and living in a movement of people. And you see it right here. The gates of hell will not overcome it. Is that going to be up there? Yes, the gates of hell will not overcome it. Now, let's just think about this statement for a second. Just go there with me, and this is a little bit of feedback here. Are gates in nature offensive or defensive? Gates are defensive, right? You build gates you build gates to, to protect. You build gates to, to, to defend. They're meant to keep something out or protect ground that has already been conquered. Well, here's the reality. If the gates of hell are for defensive purposes, then what does that mean as a church we are to be on? The offense, right? If the gates are defensive, then what is Jesus speaking? If the gates of hell will not overcome the church, then what's the church to be? An unstoppable force. And I'll just tell you, gates don't go anywhere. Gates don't attack. Gates are stationary. You're never going to have anybody run away going, oh, no, the gates are attacking me. Go get away. No, no one's ever going to do that. Because gates are defensive in nature, which means we, we are an unstoppable force as the church of Jesus Christ. And what is our mission? To attack the gates of hell and tear them down. That's the mission. And here's the best part. Where's the church? Not here. That's the answer. Okay, I'll give you the answer. It's not here. It's not this building. It's not any church building. That's not the church. The church is you. You're the church. Every time you walk out of these walls, you're the church everywhere you go. And let me just tell you, Jesus... If you take Jesus with you, Jesus plus one person is a majority. You write that down. Jesus plus one person is a majority. If Jesus is with you, you're a majority everywhere you go. We're not here to huddle up and keep the darkness out. 
Jesus actually is giving us the mission of the church to be on the offensive against the world, against the gates of hell. What are the gates of hell doing? They are holding people in lives of captivity and darkness. That's what the gates of hell are doing right now. They are creating hostility in marriages rather than refuges. They're, 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 they're keeping people in bondage to alcoholism and, and, uh, and substance abuse. They're entrapping men and an increasing number of women in pornography. The gates of hell are trying to keep us in conflict with our parents, with our coworkers, with our siblings. The gates of hell are oppressing the poor and keeping them hopeless believing that no one's ever going to help them. The gates of hell are clouding the truth of Jesus with dozens of other religions made up of false gods of pleasure and power. That is what the gates of hell are doing. Yet none of that can withstand the onslaught of the church when it is alive and working. And we are called to be on the offensive everywhere we go, not to offend but to tear down the gates of hell. And I'll just tell you this, so often when Jesus asked someone to follow him, he was on the move. When he would say to the people that were there, he said, hey, come follow me, drop everything, come follow me. He was always on the move. When he asked Peter to get out of the boat, what did he ask Peter to do? Not stand on the water. He said, hey, come walk to me on the water. It was always about movement with Jesus. That's what, an, uh, that's what you do when you're on offense. You're constantly moving. You're constantly taking more ground. And that's why we say in our church, we have a go pulse that is associated with our church. Where if, like, if you take our pulse as a church, you'll just hear, go, 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 go. Good go. That's what you're going to hear if you take our pulse. So many of us, we want to make the church about us. We want to make the church about comfort. We want to make the church about feeling good, about sitting and doing something spiritual. When really, you got to know the church is God's plan A to save the world. It's his plan A to save the world from living a life of insignificance. And I will just tell you, I am 44 years old right now, and I don't know whether I feel young or old. It changes by the day. I'm just I'm not lying to you. I just I don't know. Some days I feel like an old man. Other days I feel like, yeah, I'm just getting started. You know, I don't know how I feel sometimes, but all I do know is the older I get, the more I look back and wonder, do I have an impact? The older I get, the more I look back and go, is this all worth it? It's interesting, the older I get, the more I want to make sure that I'm living a life of significance. Well, what's the church, God's plan A to save the world from living a life of insignificance and self-indulgence and selfishness and ultimately hopelessness? And here's what you need to know about being plan A, because you're plan A. There's no plan B. It's not like, like Jesus is just like, eh, let's give it a shot with these guys, and if that doesn't work out, we'll do plan B. It's like, no, you're it. You're it. We're it. Plan a, and Jesus is calling us into battle, and here's why not very many people follow Jesus, is because Jesus says, hey, come follow me and die. That's what he says. He says, come follow me and give your life away, give up your agenda, die to yourself for me. Who wants to do that? That is so not in our nature. Yet Jesus says, if you will do that, you will be an unstoppable force in this world. What does it mean to die to yourself and to die to your agenda? It means that on Sunday mornings, you take the worst parking spot as far away as you can get, and you leave all the good parking spots for people that don't know Jesus. This is if you know Jesus, by the way. If you don't know Jesus, man, take those front parking spots. What does it mean? It means that if you're going to die to yourself and your agenda, what does it mean? It means that you sit up front in the front row so you can leave the ejector seats, the back row, for people that don't know Jesus. That way they like to sit back there. That way in case things get a little weird, they just eject, right? They just, they're gone. And they say, I'll try another day. You know, but we want to leave those ejector seats for people that don't know Jesus because that's where they're most comfortable sitting. So we ask you, are you a follower of Jesus Christ? Come sit up in the front and leave those seats in the back for them. 
You want to die to yourself and die to your agenda? What do we say? Give away a percentage of your money to the cause that's beating down the gates of hell. And we're like, oh, no, 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 no. You did not just go there. Yeah, we got to go there. Why? Because that's what Jesus says it looks like to die to yourself and your agenda. And if you're willing to do that, what's fascinating about it, the, the side benefit is not only does the mission of the church move forward, but the tentacles of greed start kind of being ripped out of your heart because they, from a very young age, they just start encompassing our hearts. And, and when you start giving a percentage of your money away, suddenly those tentacles kind of die and fall off and greed loses its grip on you. What does it mean to die to yourself and your agenda? It means you serve the poor in a way that costs you something that isn't comfortable to your life. What does it mean to, say, to, 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 to die to yourself and to die to your agenda? It means walking across the street to a neighbor in need when you just got home from work and you don't have anything less, left to give because they need Jesus at that point. They need someone to love them or they need someone to just welcome them into relationship. What does it mean to die to yourself and your agenda? It means, men, you give your life away for the sake of your wife, just like Christ did the church. What does that mean if you're a woman? It means women in, in a marriage, you serve your husband even though he will never deserve it, right? And I'm speaking for me, okay? Even though he will never deserve it, what do you do? You serve it. Why? Because Jesus, you serve them. Why? Because Jesus says, follow me and die to your agenda. Follow me and, and, and die to yourself. And I will just say we are the offensive weapon of God designed to be so loving, so hope-filled, so accepting, so non-judgmental, so friendly, so missional, so caring, so generous, so bold, and so focused, and such a bright light in this dark world that people from miles away will come just to see what's lighting up the sky. That is who we are to be. That's what you are. As the church, we're to reveal the only hope available, and that's Jesus Christ, the name above all names. One day, everyone will bow to the name of Jesus. And you've got to realize Jesus was a warrior, okay? And I know so often we have made um, Jesus this nice middle class like leader and he like has lambs in his, in his arms and he has kids around him and, and he just is so nice and fuzzy looking. We just want to hug him and we kind of make Jesus this mamby-pamby kind of leader. But when you get into who Jesus actually was, he was this warrior that would not take no for an answer. He was not domesticated. He was a, a rebel. He had a bias for action. In fact, he was, he was such a rebel that his very first day on the job, the very first thing he did, you know what the whole town tried to do? Push him off a cliff? That's how nice of a guy Jesus was. Hey, there's Mr. Rogers. Let's push him off a cliff. You don't do that to Mr. Rogers. I love how um, Alan Hirsch, he wrote the, a book called The Forgotten Ways. He writes, he writes this, and I, I love this, this, this paragraph. He says, if we want our kids to grow up to be nice, middle-class, well-adjusted, college graduates with PhDs and nice haircuts... And my suggestion to you is do not introduce them to the Gospels. Because there they will meet a Jesus that will cause them to lose their lives for his sake. There they will meet a Jesus who will redefine every relationship they have. Have you met that Jesus? Are you introducing your kids to that Jesus? See, when you read the Gospels, the main character, Jesus, is more like Braveheart than Mr. Rogers. That's Jesus. He was an unstoppable force. And when he commissioned his church, the church became an unstoppable force. That's why we're here 2,000 years later. It hasn't died off. The church is built on a rock that is rolling, that is moving, because there's a go pulse to it. And I just need to tell you, please be at our town hall meeting this Thursday night. 
I know you're like, man, it's a Thursday night, and I like to just chill and relax. Well, I want you to come and hear what we're, what's happening around here. I want you to hear what our future looks like. I want you to be able to ask questions and, and, and understand what it looks like to be the church in Central Florida. I want you to be fully prepared for what's coming. We've got a building we're opening up in a, in a few months, and then another building we're opening up after that, and we've got all kinds of things going on. I want you to know what we're up to so that you can be a part of taking ground from the enemy. So just make time, Thursday night. 7 to 8.30. Now, before I give you my last thought, um, we are going to receive our offering. So, ushers, if you guys can come forward. And, and this is where, for those of you that um, call Kensington home, this is where you give back to God from what he's blessed you with. And for those of you that are new here um, and you're still checking out this God thing, let the basket go by. Uh, we're not interested in your money. God's got plenty. We're not interested in your money. We're interested in this service being a gift to you and potentially changing the address of your eternal destination. And I don't want this money part to get in your way at all. So my third thought, the church is built on a rock. The church is built on a rock that is rolling. And the last one is the church is built on a rock that leaves a mark. It's built on a rock that leaves a mark. And you see it in the gates of hell will not overcome it. The, the, the church is going to smash through those gates and it leaves a mark that lasts for eternity. And I will just say this, when you have a true encounter with Jesus Christ... It changes everything about your life. It changes everything about your life. And so I want to share with you a story from a woman at our church. Um, and I got this just a few months ago at Christmas time. She sent me this email. And I just read it and I wept. Because it's the story of what happens when the church is the church. It's the story of what happens when the church is taking down the gates of hell. One life at a time. And I asked her for permission if I could read it. And I will do my best to read through this. Um, but this is what can happen when the church is working, right? She writes, I moved to the Orlando area almost seven years ago. I have been a member of Kensington, in parentheses, my first church ever, for five of those. I was 32, but honestly more like a child. Although I considered myself to be generally a well-meaning person, my priorities in life were hindering every bit of God's plan to be executed without contempt on my part. God literally had to deliver me by way of removing one by one everything I deemed as my identity so that I may come to see myself as he did. I could not have done this without the masterful orchestration done on your parts each and every week I have gone from childlike to child of God. Thank you. I used to think I deserved a free pass for my trials, my mom passing away from medical malpractice and losing the lawsuit, my husband struggling with depression, infidelity, and medication, losing my best friend in the entire world, my grandmother. I chose to numb myself with happiness. I worked as a dancer at Disneyland as a college student in Southern California. I grew up in San Francisco. So naturally, my idol resided in Mickey Mouse and the promises made through him. I worshiped the created and not the creator. Of course, we know where that leads us after multiple months, years, sitting in that fourth row on Sunday mornings. I began the process of shedding, shedding the despise I had for men. The desperation I had for thinking my life wasn't worth living without my grandmother. For thinking I wasn't worthy. I was able to talk to God. Really talk to him. I didn't always approach him with open arms and a smile. I was confused. It seemed like I was happier before I knew him. And worse at times when I began to actually know him. But through your services you served me. You served me his ways through art. Through authenticity. 
And you all have helped save my life. And she's speaking to us, the church. You all have helped save my life and the lives of my family. My husband is on the mend. He continues to write music to glorify God and help those he identifies with. My 13-year-old daughter has channeled her abilities into breathtaking art and will make a compassionate veterinarian if, in fact, that's what she chooses to do. My little one, seven years old, is learning about God early on and myself, forgiving myself and my husband to unify this family so that we can point one another vertically. Thank you. I don't stop searching for the ones. And if you know anything about our mission statement to see everyone transformed and mobilized by Jesus, we want to see every person that's far from God get to know him. And she says, I don't stop searching for the ones because we are four ones. Her family was four ones at one point. Merry Christmas. I wish I could attach a check to purchase an entire Kensington city for you. Yes, please. But that's the kind of mark that the church can have when it is taking down the gates of hell, one life at a time, four lives at a time, one family at a time. I'm just telling you, every Sunday, we never know who's walking in these doors. I don't know their stories. You don't know their stories. But all I do know is that only Jesus can change a family like this. Only Jesus can change someone's heart like this. Only Jesus can, cha Jesus can change the eternal destination that all of us have. Now, let's tell you, it's one of the reasons why we're making some of the changes we're making at our church here, why we're stepping out and becoming our own 501c3. The call is, is so great on our church to be laser-focused in West Orange County to reach the ones here you guys are stepping up in such amazing ways. Two years ago, we, we, we did a finance campaign, and we just said, hey, would you give over and above what you already tithe so that we could expand our ministry footprint in this area so we could reach more people, so that we could take more ground from Satan, so that we could have a 24-6 facility to actually do ministry out of the other six days of the week. And you guys stepped up in such beautiful ways, and we're actually um, uh, signing a lease and are going to be breaking ground on that in just a couple weeks, and that's what we're going to talk about on Thursday. But I'm just telling you, God is doing something special here because the church is not designed to be still and stagnant and comfortable. It is designed by Jesus to constantly be taking ground from the enemy. And I will just tell you, this is what I believe. I believe that there are hundreds, if not thousands more stories that God is going to tell through this church, like this one. I think this is one of hundreds, potentially thousands of lives that are going to be changed because of what God is doing through you. And so I want to go ahead and invite the band out. Tina, if you can send the band out. As I close, um, we're going to sing a couple, we're going to sing a song together. But here's the question that I want us to, to just talk about for just a second. And that is this, what do we do then? Okay, so if the church is this unstoppable force and God's calling me to be a part of it, and you already are in many ways, then what do we do with it? And I just have four thoughts and then we're going to just sing and close out our day. But the first thing is this, what do you do with this? If there's anything going on in your heart right now and your heart kind of pumping out of your chest a little bit, first thing I would say is get involved in making Kensington happen week in and week out. Be a part of the life of this place. Be on team. Be in relationship with other people. 
helping make this place happen. The second thing I would say is jump in financially. We are taking on a new financial burden with this new reality that we're stepping into. And I want to thank those of you that, that already do. Join a small group. Get involved in relationships outside of Sunday so that you can be growing in your understanding and knowledge of Jesus and have accountability in your life. And lastly, it's this. It is go out and take new ground. It is go meet people. You already know people, but be around people that don't know Jesus and invest your life in them. It is walking across the street to your neighbor that you know doesn't go to church anywhere and doesn't know Jesus and maybe introducing yourself to them for the first time, even though it's been years. And investing in a relationship with them, investing in your coworkers and some of the coworkers that you're like, well, they're a little EGR for me. Extra grace required, by the way. Maybe it's investing in them a little bit. To do what? To invite them into a relationship with Jesus. It's just invest and invite. Invest your life in what's going to matter for eternity and invite people to come be a part and do the exact same thing. God's given you a sphere of influence for a purpose. And it's not to draw people to yourself, although that's the temptation. It is literally to draw people to him. The best way I've ever heard is that, you know, some of us, we live our lives like lava lamps. Lava lamps, what do lava lamps say? All lava lamps say is, look at me, baby, because I'm awesome. Stare at me. Watch what I can do. Some of us live our lives like that because Jesus says you're the light of the world. Some of us are lights like that. We just want to draw people to ourselves. But the light that Jesus is calling us to live like are spotlights. What do spotlights do? They light up the most important person on the stage. And that is Jesus Christ. I can't help but ask the question, what would happen? We lived our lives like spotlights. Hundreds of spotlights shining on the most important person in the room, Jesus Christ, on a regular basis. And I'll just tell you, that's why it's such a privilege for me to lead this church and to do what I get to do. It's, a, it's an honor. It's a, I can't, I, I still wake up 20 plus years into doing this. I still can't believe I get to do what I get to do. And it's not have a job that pays money and doing what I do here on this stage. It is actually be a part of the movement of Jesus Christ in the world. Let's pray. Jesus, I am so thankful for you. I'm so grateful that you are actively pursuing us right now so that we might be a part of your plan A to save the world. God, is it a, it's a privilege to know you. It's a privilege to use our gifts for your purposes. And God, you have a room full of people here that you have given specific spiritual gifts to that you have given to them to use to build your church, to point to you, to save people from a life of insignificance and pull them into a life that's bigger than their own. Jesus, I pray right now for those in this room that haven't made a decision yet for you, that haven't uttered on their lips that you are Lord and believed it in their heart that you died for their sins. God, would you right this very moment open up their eyes to see the truth in that and help them to declare it this moment and change their eternal address. And God, I pray for us as a church. We want to be an unstoppable force. I want us to be an unstoppable force. I want to be a part of the unstoppable force of your church. 
being on the offense in such a powerful way that the gates of hell just crash in as you take the ground of life after life and family after family and neighborhood after neighborhood bringing the light into the darkness I thank you Jesus for the people that are in this room and the people that are not yet in this room but will be soon may you use us to shape eternity